We have been looking through the Mosaic Law. The beginning section, anyway. There will be more added to it. You get into the book of Leviticus. There is much more that God will add to the people of Israel that they need to keep and that they will not be able to keep, but that's kind of the point. A law that reveals their sin and in so revealing helps them and helps us to realize our great need for grace. God. But we've been looking at these laws handed down and, and recognizing that they had an immediate impact on this fledgling nation. This group of people called the people or the children of Israel. They were just being pulled together. I mean, think about this. They were drawn out of Egypt as this mass of people, this little society that had been huddled in Goshen for 400 years. They probably had certain ways of doing things, but they, know, they had no legal system. They had no laws, no rules, no parameters for living as a people. They just kind of got by. And now God brings them out into the middle of the desert, and what does he do? Absolute perfect wisdom. He says, let me give you some boundaries. Let me give you some fences, some ways that you can deal with each other. And not only deal with each other, but I'm going to give you some perfect ways that you can deal with each other. And in so doing, he gives them a society. He develops them this whole civil system, a religious system. He, he brings all these things together to give them some sense of actually being a nation. That's what he's doing, is developing a nation here. But we've also seen that beyond Israel, these things are not just applicable to the people of Israel. They are practical to us today. Now, you may not have an ox or a donkey, but you, you may, as we talked about last week, you may not worry about your ox goring your neighbor's ox, but there's application there that if we'll take the time to look at it, we can see. And there's so much of it in this chapter, I just want to jump right in. Let me help you if you happen to be taking notes. Let me give you a four-day outline. It's not going to take us four days to get through this. Relax. But a four-day outline. There are four specific days that are talked about, or I think at least that we can use as an outline for chapter 23. And here they are ahead of time. Number one is Israel's day in court. Israel's day in court. We're going to see that in the first nine verses of chapter 23. Israel's day in court. Secondly, Israel's day of rest. Israel's day of rest is verses 10 through 12 of chapter 23. Thirdly, and I'll repeat these one more time if you're uh, not keeping up. Uh, thirdly, Israel's days of celebration. Israel's days of celebration, chapter 23, verses 14 through 19. And finally, in our outline for tonight, Israel's day of promise, which will begin around verse 20 and head to the rest of the chapter. Uh, 33 is the final verse. So 20 through 33 is Israel's day of promise. So here they are again, one more time. Four-day outline, Israel's day in court, Israel's day of rest, Israel's days of celebration, and Israel's day of promise. But don't look at these things for Israel. Apply them to you. Look at your own life and, and compare and think about and, and process through what God is telling Israel and the impact it can have on us personally. So let's begin. Verse 1. You shall not... Bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. A malicious witness. Now, this very first verse, the context of the first nine verses is Israel's day in court. These are judicial laws that God is setting up for Israel. And in these nine verses, he's going to give some parameters for how you deal with things literally in the courtroom. But what's interesting is right off the bat, and you'll notice this, the rules of conduct... Though they all have to do with judicial conduct, they are not for the judge. They're for the witness or the witnesses. God's way of dealing with things is not leaving it to the judge to decide. It's making sure that the witnesses handle themselves correctly in the courtroom. 
that the truth will come not from the judge trying to figure out after all the evidence is thrown out there and all the lies have been told and after the lawyers have fought back and forth and tried to present their best case then the judge sits there or the jury sits there and tries to figure out well who's really telling the truth God says we're going to bypass all of that and go directly to the witnesses and he says Israelites as a witness you do not bear false report if you are in the courtroom and you're a witness there's no lying that is rule number one don't lie don't do it don't bear false report it's a, a restatement of the ninth commandment that he gave back in chapter 20 we're studying those on Sunday morning we haven't quite gotten to the ninth commandment yet but that commandment is Exodus chapter 20 verse 16 you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor don't lie now the reason why this is valuable for us today is not just the fact that we know witnesses get up on the stand and lie all the time that's not the point for us as Christians we have a word that we use a lot that, that we think about in the way we live our lives and it's witness hey how's your witness what's your Christian witness we talk about witnessing being witnesses of Christ in the world well I want to give you four things out of these nine verses that reveal to us God's heart for a witness how to truly be a witness not only for Israel in the courtroom but for us as believers as Christians and number one is that a witness stands on truth a witness stands on truth absolute truth matters absolutely God wants his people to stand on the truth to know that there is truth to understand and realize truth is not relative that's the world we live in the relativistic world that says hey it's whatever you want it to be whatever truth is to you that's truth no it's not true God says there is an absolute there is a truth that is so solid so foundational you can stand on it and a witness stands on truth now you may say well okay that, that's easy enough I mean we understand that as Christians I, I don't know that we do a witness stands on truth think about how you live out absolute truth in your life in the things that you deal with Hannah got in the car my, my 12 year old daughter got in the car after spending the night with a friend this last weekend and they had been online at her friend's house and they've been playing this thing called Neopets if you've ever heard about Neopets probably most of you haven't Neopets is just a, it's an online kind of game thing that they can play and it, it's safe and it's, it's not a bad thing but part of what you can do on Neopets is you can get a Neo buddy or a Neo pal I guess they call them and you can email back and forth to that person but you have to be 13 years old or older to sign up so Hannah's in the backseat of the car 12 years old and she says dad I gotta tell you what we did this is so cool I signed up and, to, to get Neo pals and I said really well how'd you do that well you have to be 13 or older but you know I, I, I'm almost 13 so it's fine and I said whoa wait a minute that's not fine and, and Hannah said oh dad come on okay I, I know what you're saying and she, she wanted to tell me about this Neopet thing about her Neo pal that she had emailed and talked to that's what she wanted to talk about dad wanted to talk about truth she's not 13 she goes dad I'm almost 13 yes but Hannah are you 13 no I'm not but I'm almost 13 and we went round and round and round in the car driving home and I finally said well what if, it, what if the rule was that you have to be 18 would you, would you sign up then and just say that you were 18 even though you're not and she goes, well, no, of course I wouldn't do that. I said, how about 16? Would you do it 16? No, I wouldn't do that 14. No, of course I wouldn't. 13? Well, I did. Where is your, where is your measure here, sweetheart? And we began to talk about truth. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. And it didn't to Hannah. She was like, come on, Dad, give me a break. That doesn't really matter. Absolute truth matters absolutely. It does matter. It does make a difference. And I told Hannah, how about this example? Let's, let's pull all the pressure off of you. How about Dad sitting in the kitchen? The phone rings and Mom answers it and says, uh, just a minute, 
and looks at me and says, it's for you, and I say, tell them I'm not here. It's a lie. Same thing. It's not a big deal. You just don't want to talk on the phone right then. Hey, absolute truth matters. Absolutely. Why is it a big deal? Because, gang, little white lies, these little untruths, these little mistruths, they generate what I'd like to call liability. They generate liability. They begin us down a road, and it may not seem like a big road, it may seem, you know, harmless, but they draw us away from the truth. God wants us to deal with truth. He says, don't bear false witness. Don't join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You stand on truth. A witness stands on truth. Why? Because a witness among us represents the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the truth. So what does a non-Christian person say when they're standing there, or maybe one of our kids, say when they hear us express little mistruths? When they know you're talking around the water cooler at work and you mention fudging on your taxes. Well, what does a non-Christian see in a Christian who, who yeah, oh man, I, I kind of, you know, expanded a few things here and changed a few things there, but IRS isn't going to know. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter if they know. You know. A witness stands on the truth. And again, Jesus says, I am the truth. The good news is that he's able to help us stand on the truth. He is the one who gives us the strength to stand. Jude 24 says he's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So Jesus is the truth. The witness stands on truth. Secondly, a witness is not swayed by the crowd. Look at verse 2. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. A witness is not swayed by the crowd. It's peer pressure. I I always thought as a kid growing up ultimately peer pressure would ease up. What I have discovered is peer pressure is stronger and more insidious among adults than it ever was as a teenager. Because we all understand each other, you know. We know where we're coming from. So come on, we're just going to do this thing and, and it's not the greatest thing. We're going to share this movie together and we probably shouldn't be seeing it. And maybe if I was by myself and thinking about just being alone with Jesus, I wouldn't be there. But the game's going. The multitude's there. The, the mass is, is heading out. And so we end up getting swayed. Again, you might think, well, that's not that big a deal. I'm a pretty strong person. Gang, strong people get swayed in dangerous ways. Let me give you three biblical examples. Number one. I'll just give you two, sorry. Number one is that Pilate, Pilate, who was a strong person, had a great deal of responsibility, a procurator overseeing Judea. This this was a, a, a big guy on campus. But Pilate was swayed by the crowd. Mark 15, verse 12, Pilate said, What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew it. He said it. I find no guilt in this man. However, listen to these words. They shouted all the more, Crucify him. And verse 15 of Mark 15 tells us this, Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Why did Pilate do it? Because it was the right thing to do? Because there was truth in the accusations? No. He just wanted to satisfy the crowd. He wanted them off his back. The pressure was too much. So he gave up the truth. Okay, Rick, but that's Pilate. That's just Pilate. You know, I mean, he he was a a pagan anyway, so of course he's not going to stand on the truth. How about someone like Peter? 
oh well yeah we saw Peter mess up a lot before the crucifixion but after the resurrection of Christ when, when Peter gets restored to ministry he does great stuff then in fact he's rock solid all the way out not so as a matter of fact there's a little passage of scripture let me just read this to you Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 interesting that Paul wrote this and it's on Peter's resume for all of history check this out Paul said, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, now this is Paul, the guy who is, is recent to the church, opposing Peter, who is probably one of the high, well, he is one of the highest leaders in the church. People saw Peter and thought, well, man, he was one of Jesus' best friends. He's one of the king apostles. I mean, this guy, he's someone to listen to. And Paul gets right up in his face. I love Paul. Paul is like the Simon Fuller of the apostles. Simon Fuller is the guy on, you know, American Idol who, I don't know if you've seen that, who gets, okay, if you haven't. But that's who, that's exactly what he's like. And Paul gets right up in Peter's face, and it says in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, for prior to the coming of certain men with James, or from James, <clears throat> Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. In other words, fearing the Jewish Christians. Peter began to step back from the Gentiles, who he had been hanging out with. Peter knew God accepted the Gentiles, knew God wanted them involved, but he backed off. Why? Because he feared the peer pressure. Because he feared the masses. Because the multitude of Jewish believers wouldn't have liked it. And so Paul goes on to write, Galatians 2.13, The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Paul says, when I thought they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now you may ask, well, where did Paul's boldness, even with other believers, even when the leadership with the leadership of the early church come from? Where did Paul get these guts? The truth. Paul stood on the truth. He was not swayed by the crowd. Gaining the strength of a witness is not found in numbers. It is found in the truth. And we have the truth. We've got the truth. I fear there are a lot of Christians who don't realize this is not just one choice of many religions. This is the truth. This is it. And we hold it in our hands. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul said, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Verse 3. And we're taking a little longer in these first nine verses because there's just so much in here. It'll move faster in a few minutes. I'm wondering if you guys are buying that. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Number three, a witness does not show favoritism. Witness stands on the truth. A witness is not swayed by the crowd. But thirdly, a witness does not show favoritism. And it's interesting here, God says, you shouldn't be partial to a poor man. Now later, on, on down in verse six, he's going to say, uh, don't be against a man just because he's poor. But he's saying, you need to be impartial. A witness does not show favoritism. Again, a witness stands on that which is true. James chapter 2, verse 1. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter what they've done or where they've come from. It doesn't matter if they're rich, poor, or somewhere in the middle. You do not show favoritism to that person. Just don't do it. A witness doesn't. 
these simple things, that even just these three we've looked at so far, as we follow these, I want you to understand it increases our witness with other people. They see us standing on the truth. They see that we don't show favoritism to anybody. We see, they see that we're not swayed by where the multitude or the masses are going, but we just follow what God's Word says. And that in itself is a powerful witness in a world that doesn't consider these things important. Verse 4, going on, tells us the following. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him, your enemy. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. These two verses are amazing to me. Your enemy, one who hates you. You know what I would do if I saw my enemy's car? Maybe the brake comes off and it's rolling down the road about to crash into something. I'd go, this is going to be fun. I wish I had a video camera. I'd like to see this over and over. Our natural inclination is to desire, to want harm to come to our enemies. Or maybe not harm to them, but we want some bad stuff to happen. And when we hear it happen, we kind of go, (laughs) bummer for them. God already early on in the law is revealing what Jesus would say later on. And that's love your enemy. Love your enemy. Now this is still in the context of the courtroom. But the enemy speaks just as well for us as the opposing party, the one, the person who is against you, the person who set themselves against you, or who hates you, or who holds you in low esteem. And God says, hey, if you see something happening bad, something negative, their ox is wandering away, their donkey wandering off, if, if you see the donkey is under a heavy load and it's helpless and can't move, what do you do? Laugh and walk away? No, you go and you help your enemy. To what end? For what purpose? Number four, a witness seeks restoration. A witness seeks restoration. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 12. If you want to flip over there, you can. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. This issue is so incredibly important to us and so practical because it really, Paul's about to talk about literally a way to restore an enemy into friendship. That's what God is pointing at and hoping for too as well when he says, hey, stop your neighbor or your enemy's donkey from wandering away. If, If he's under load, help him out. Help your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. God is already setting the standard for restoration here. And Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, which is an important phrase, gang, because... If it depends on you, if there's anything you can do, God says, do it. There are things you can't do. There are things your enemies or those who hate you or someone who has said against you just will not respond to. But God says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, we've talked about this before. I see that verse and I go, yeah, that's a good reason to help my enemy, because it will make him feel guilty. I'll heap burning coals on his head. What's interesting, and uh, John Walford talks about this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this idea of heaping coals on someone's head. The coals on the head may refer to a ritual in Egypt in which a person showed his repentance by carrying a pan of burning charcoal on his head. 
And Wahlberg writes, helping rather than cursing an enemy may bring him to repentance. And that's the idea of the heaping burning coals. That's the idea. You help a friend, you love a friend, you show kindness to a friend, and it may bring that, or an enemy, sorry, show all these things to an enemy, and it may bring that enemy to repentance. And that's the whole point. That's the whole idea. Well, Paul also says in verse 21 of Romans 12, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. But what if that person hates me so much that they won't respond to me? That they won't even hear me? That they won't even get back to me as much as I might try? This is powerful. There is still a way I can help my enemy with his burden. There's still a way I can return his straying donkey to him. There's still a way that I can help him when he's got a load on his back. And how is that? Even if he will have no contact with you, you can pray. You can pray for him. Jesus put it this way. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Praying for the person who is dead set against you is, I believe, the greatest tool of relational restoration that we have as witnesses of Christ. Witnesses who stand on the truth, who are not swayed by the crowd, not showing favoritism, but in all things seeking restoration. So far as it depends on you. Well, verse 6, going on. Verse 6, Exodus 23 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Okay, so this is the other side again of verse 3. Don't, don't pervert the justice. Don't be partial to a man who is poor. But also don't pervert justice to someone who is poor, who is in a dispute. And he goes on, he says in verse 7, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Verse 7 refers directly to a false charge in court that ends up with somebody gaining capital punishment. It's standing up in court and, and lying so that the person who you lie about ends up getting the death penalty. Why would this be so important to God? Well, the obvious reason is justice. God is a just God, and He doesn't want injustice to happen to any of His people. But there's another reason here. God knows, and you and I know, that this is exactly how Jesus ends up crucified. Because of a false report given in court. Because somebody stands up, gives a false charge against Jesus, and based on that false charge, on false trials, Jesus would eventually go to the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Christ committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who acts or who judges righteously. The charges against Christ were utterly, utterly false, albeit utterly true on my account. Because his charges were my charges, were your charges. And yet he paid for them anyway though the, the charges were false against him. Well, verse 8 goes on, You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of justice. And that's, that's where the phrase, by the way, comes from, that uh, justice is blind. The true justice is blind. It, it doesn't consider persons. It doesn't consider anything except the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's all justice is concerned about. And God says, so you don't take a bribe. 
because it blinds the clear-sighted. It subverts the cause of justice. And verse 9 says, You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in Egypt. And again, I, I just love this. We see in verse 9 the Lord repeating... A second time now, this idea of Israel being fair to strangers and reminding them they were strangers in Egypt. Remember what that was like when you were one of the outsiders. Now that you're the insiders, now that you're my people, you need to consider the stranger. Show love to the stranger. Don't subvert the cause of the stranger. Remember how it feels to be a stranger. And we see God's spotlight here on the outsider. And these flies are killing me. Okay. They're everywhere. It's frustrating. Did you see him land on the microphone right in the middle of worship? I was afraid one good breath and I was going to suck him right in. I, well, I thought about that. I would just munch him or something. It's terrible. Anyway, Jesus had a heart for the outsider. God has always had a heart for the stranger. We see Jesus when he walked on planet Earth with the tax collectors, the sinners, the Samaritans, those who were beaten up and bedraggled. The outsiders. And Jesus' actions, as you recall, infuriated the Jewish leaders of his day. But his heart for the outsider and God's heart for the outsider is important for us as a church. It's something that I believe every church should be cultivating. And I pray that we continue to cultivate at the bridge. And I, I love watching on Sunday morning people coming in the door. And I love the reception that, that it appears. Sometimes, you know, when I'm up front and we're trying to get the music ready, whatever, I'm looking out there and praying that people are coming and feeling welcome and feeling a good reception. That is of Christ. That is what Jesus wants for fellowships of Christians. That's what he desires is that we welcome the outsider, that there really is no such thing as an outsider. And a great question, by the way, for everyone who calls the Bridge Fellowship your, your church home, is how did I feel the first time I came here? Well, it was easy for you, Barb. I mean, you, you live here. But, but how did I feel the first time I walked in the door? Did I feel welcome? Did I feel like, man, this is, this is home. This is a place for me. Or did I feel shunned? Did I feel like, oh, I don't really, these people, they seem nice, but no one's even said a word to me. We all need to remember being in that place where we all were there at one point or another. Maybe not even at this church, but you've been there somewhere in your life where you felt like you were on the outside. Remember that feeling and apply it to whoever walks in the door and come with open eyes. How can I welcome a newcomer? Well, verse 10, going on. That sums up Israel's day in court. Second part of our outline, Israel's day of rest. Verse 10 tells us, You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and with your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Now, in these two verses, or three verses here, God expresses again this idea of Sabbath, but he stretches the idea of the Sabbath out. Now it's not just a Sabbath day, not just the seventh day of the week where you are to rest, but he says it's the seventh year. Every seventh year, you need to have a Sabbath. You need to let the ground lie and just be fallow. Whatever grows up, grows up. So if you've been cultivating grapes in, in, a, in a, a, a field for, for six years, on the seventh, you let it do its own thing. And if the grapes come up, great. But in that year, the grapes do not belong to you. They go to the poor. They go to people who need it. They go to the beasts if no one else. 
but you don't touch it, you don't work it. You take a Sabbath, a Sabbath year, a land Sabbath. Why is this? Four quick reasons to jot down. Number one is simply an agricultural reason. Because it's good for the land. And you'll notice this on Whidbey Island and over in the Skagit Valley. You'll notice how farmers will switch fields. You know, one year you'll see the pumpkin patch on one side of the road, and it's huge and it's massive. The next year, that field lies fallow, and the pumpkin patch is on the other side of the road, because the farmer understands something. It is healthy for the soil not to get worked over constantly, year after year after year. So, you go back and forth. Well, an agricultural reason is one reason why God does this. He wants the land to be protected, but secondly, is a custodial reason. A custodial reason. This law will serve to remind Israel that they are just caretakers. They're custodians. This land doesn't belong to them. Every seventh year they remember, oh yeah, it's not mine in the first place, so I guess I just let whoever wants to take out of this land can take from it. Because it doesn't belong to me, I'm just a steward. Third reason is a charitable reason. It focused care for needy people among the Israelites and then after them, the animals. Now you may say, well that doesn't seem quite fair because poor people are not just poor every seventh year. Right? I mean, that means for six years someone has to wait around for a free meal? That doesn't seem to really care for the poor. One thing you need to notice in this, in this rule is it's not necessarily tied to the first day they arrive in Canaan's land. It's not tied to a specific timetable. So one man may buy a field and begin to grow, and in the seventh year, that field has to lie fallow. Someone else has already had a field going for three years, and three years into that, he will let his field lie fallow. In other words, all the different people, all the different fields, beginning their their process of, of harvesting at different times, on any given year in Israel, there would be a field, or probably many fields, that were lying fallow. So a poor person in Israel could, if they had no income and no way to get any money or any, any food, could go from field to field to field on, an, on a yearly basis finding the fields that are lying fallow, that are, that are lying just growing up whatever grows there. It was God's way of saying, I want the, the poor taken care of among my people. And here's an easy way to do it. Every seventh year. So whoever you are as a farmer, or whatever your timetable is, there would be seventh years happening on an annual basis. Does that make sense? Is picking that up? So a charitable reason. But the, the fourth reason, and this is probably my favorite one, is a communicable reason. A communicable reason. This whole idea of Sabbath is something that is passed on from one person to another. Do you realize that if you don't take a Sabbath, you may be in danger of denying those around you rest? Now, I experience this in my family all the time. Cheryl is finally starting to get over being sick. She's really tired, so she's, she's home tonight, and, which is good because I wanted to talk about her anyway. But she, uh, she is a go-getter. My wife, I'll tell you what, I, don't, I know very few people that have the energy level that Cheryl Crawford has. Her mother is one, but be that as it may, she's, she's sitting here, so we can't really talk about her. But, but Cheryl gets up in the morning, and I'll tell you, this is how I know Cheryl's getting sick, and it's very rare, is when she gets up and she's dragging and she's moving slow. I know something's wrong, because that is not her. She is up and she's off like a shot, and she doesn't stop going until her head hits the pillow at night. I mean, I have to force her to sit down sometimes and just talk to me, just look at me. Cheryl and I realize in our marriage anyway that I'm more like the woman and she's more like the man, you know, because I want to talk and relate and communicate. She's like busy. She's got stuff to do, you know. And that's, that's so much the way her personality is. This verse is perfect for people like my wife, who is a wonderful, wonderful servant. She has the gift of helps. She will do anything for you. But you know what? She works so hard that sometimes those around her don't get a break. 
And I do the same thing to my kids. We've got to get it done. We've got work to do. And my kids need a break. And what God is saying here is, I want you to rest every seventh day. Why is that? Because there are people around you who need to rest. You may not think you need it. You personally may be, may be able to just charge forward. But not everybody can. And ultimately neither can you. Look at the wording of this. Six days you are to do your work. But on the seventh day, cease from labor. So that your ox and your donkey can rest. And the son of your female slave as well as your stranger. What God is saying here is all these other people who are connected to the amount of work that you do need a break. And if you take a break, guess what? They get a break. And so it's a communicable reason. This whole idea of Sabbath is not just for you as an individual. It's for those around you. And if I've cast any dispersion on my wife, I apologize. She's a wonderful person. But she's just such a prime example of high energy. It's just the way she is. If you are a high energy person, again, maybe you need to apply this principle. Take a Sabbath, whether you feel like it or not, so those around you can take a Sabbath. Rest is something we pass on. I I love this example, this story. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Talks about in, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has sent out the 12 apostles, and then they have been going ministry powerhouse. It's been a, a literal ministry mania. They've been going nuts, healing people and casting out demons and preaching the word, and they come back and they are charged up. They're amped up, they're ready to go. They, they don't want to stop. And what happens here? Listen to this, verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. You can almost feel the energy coming out of this verse. And Jesus said, to them right on let's do more man you're on a roll let's keep it going no Jesus said come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest come on guys you've been doing a great job you've been working so hard now it's time for a break Let's go get away. And it tells us there were many people coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. You hear the heart of the Father here when it comes to rest? Take a break. Don't go gangbusters 24-7. Rest is good. Rest is ordained by God. Rest is something He wants for all of His people. It's not going to hurt you. By the way, Israel's violation of this land Sabbath of this every seventh year they will violate this for 490 years after they come into the promised land for 490 years they will say forget it we're not going to let the land rest because in that seventh year we got more that we can accomplish we can raise more crops we can get more done you know if I work a 50 hour week instead of a 40 hour week think about how much more I can do if I work 60 hours this week it's that much more I can make Man, if I can pull a 70-hour week, success is right around the corner for me. Well, that's what Israel tried to do. For 490 years, they worked both ends of the, they burned both ends of, into the candle. They didn't stop, and ultimately God would send them into Babylonian captivity. And you know what the punishment was? 70 years. Why 70 years of Babylonian captivity? To pay back the 70 individual years they skipped for 490 years. Isn't that amazing? God says, Israel, you're not going to take a break. I'll give you a break. You're captive. That happens in our lives too. We become captive to our drive for success, to our desire to achieve. And ultimately, if we become captive to it, God's going to say, look, I'm going to show you how to take a break. And he did that with Israel. By the way, and I think this is interesting, this idea of seventh 
year rest or seventh day rest this idea of six days and then a seventh day of rest it's so deeply embedded in God's plans for his people and I believe in his plans for the world itself now I've shared this before I think we have in a microcosm in a small picture in the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest in the the seven day week I think we have a picture of all of history six thousand years of history having gone by and a seven thousand year which will be or of the millennium which will be a time a thousand year time of rest a Sabbath what's interesting about this and I I share that I know I shared that before but this idea was preached in the early church I was just reading this last week in church history right around the time of the apostles and just after there are writings that they have found that have shown that this is exactly what they thought that's what they believed that the earth was would be around for six thousand years and in the seven thousand year would come God's millennium, would come God's reign of peace and prosperity. This is not a new idea. It was around 2,000 years ago in the early days of the church. Well, verse 13 is a transition verse for us. God says, Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. And with that, we begin to shift from legal ordinances, Israel's day in court and Israel's days of rest, now to Israel's religious observances or days of celebration. Number three on your list, Israel's days of celebration. Verse 14 says, Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. I don't think it's quite fair. We just get one. We have Thanksgiving once a year. It's not fair. Israel got three. We, we should have more Thanksgivings, in my opinion. You shall observe, number one, the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. By the way, the month of Abib is also the month of Nisan today. That's, that's the month that it was eventually changed to. But he says, you will have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 16, you shall also, here's the second feast, you shall observe the Feast of the Harvest of the first fruits of your labors, from what you sow in the field. And also, third feast, the Feast of Ingathering, at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So three feasts here. Just, just to recap this, three feasts, three times a year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen in the springtime, in the month of Abib, or later it would be called Nisan, immediately following the Passover. Passover happens, and immediately, the very next day, begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread and runs the following week. Okay, That happens. That's the first feast, and God says, you will observe this every year. Second feast of celebration is the Feast of Harvest of the First Fruits, or Pentecost. That would happen 50 days later. Still in the springtime, but now we're in the latter part of the springtime. The Feast of the Harvest, or Pentecost. And third feast here, that God is setting up, is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles would happen in the month of Tishri, which is September-October time frame, or the fall. But I want you to notice something that's interesting here, and it's how the people were supposed to come to these feasts of celebration. Look at verse 15 one more time tells us the last sentence of the verse none shall appear before me empty handed none shall come empty handed I like that when you come to a feast of the Lord God says you don't come with nothing to give 
You don't show up saying, okay, I'm here, feed me. Take care of me. He says, don't come empty-handed. You come with something to give. Don't come just to receive. Come to give. And I think there's a beautiful application in that. When we show up together, whether it's on a Wednesday night, a Sunday morning, when we gather with other Christians, don't come just to receive. Come with a heart that says, I am here to give. The Lord tells Israel when you show up for the feast, don't come empty-handed, but come with arms full. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, listen closely, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God says life is not bound up in what you get, it's bound up in what you give. And so come ready to share. That means when you walk into the church in this context and you see other people, your immediate thought is not, who's going to notice me? Who's going to talk to me? Who's going to take care of my needs this morning? Boy, I hope someone will just you know, reach out a hand and shake my hand. I hope somebody will give me a hug. I hope somebody will, will save a seat for me. The attitude when you walk in the door is, what are the needs? Who can I help? How can I give this morning? Whose life can I touch? How can I minister to other people? It it was a great um, teaching I learned early on in youth ministry. And that was to, this friend of mine called it the youth ministry radar. That you're in the youth room and as the kids are coming in, immediately with the first child, the radar goes up. And you're watching. And every kid that comes in, make sure you touch them in some way or another. Say their name. Wish them a happy birthday if it happens to be their birthday. Ask them how they're doing. Every single one. Make sure you get a contact with them. Ministry radar up. And I, for years, I functioned that way. I thought as a youth pastor, man, when people come in, when kids come in the door, i got to make sure I get a touch. Until it dawned on me that that wasn't solely my job. It's amazing how it, it impacted my youth ministry in California when I began talking to the kids about youth ministry radar. Training them. It got to the point where I I couldn't hardly reach other people because kids were doing it. And that's what God calls us to. Don't come empty-handed wanting to be fed. You come ready to feed other people, to care for other people's needs. Well, verse 18. Verse 18 says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. Now God is reiterating now rules for the Passover that he talked about in Exodus chapter 12. But in verse 19 he goes on and says, You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Now this is one of those verses in the middle of a passage where you, kind of, you get the look on your face that Hank just got right then. Excuse me, what? We're talking about feasts and he just throws out, don't boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Well, we'll talk about why in just a second. But before we do, listen to this again. God says, bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. God doesn't say, wait until the harvest comes in and then give to the Lord. He says, you bring the first fruits. The first fruits that come up on the vine. The first thing out of the harvest that you collect. You bring that to the Lord first. Everything else you can keep. But bring me the first fruits. Bring me the best. Bring me what comes in first. Again, God says, when you come to the feast, come ready to give. And I think the application here is obvious to us. The first fruits of our labors. That which we receive first. I don't know where you are with giving, what you do with giving, what you've determined to give between you and the Lord, or where you give, whether it's to your church, to missionary organizations, whatever. I don't need to know that. But I do need to tell you this. 
But the Lord says the best way to do it as you purpose to give is make it the first thing that comes out of the paycheck. If you have a list of bills, if you have a budget, put your giving, put your tithe at the top. Don't wait and see. Man, okay, have I paid everything else? Have I taken care of everything? Yes, I have. Okay, there's enough left over. I can give this week. God says, no. That's, that's backwards from, from my economy. In God's economy, He says, you give it first. The first grades. And then watch how I care for you. And then watch and see what I'm going to do to provide, even when you don't think it's possible for me to provide. I, I could go off on this. I, I'll, I'll just share one quick thing. I had a great friend um, whose name was Jeff. Lived in California, worked with me in, in the youth ministry at the church I was at down there. And what was amazing about Jeff is he was working on his master's degree in ministry. He was working at Olive Garden. He was married with two young children the same age as, as Corey and Hannah at the time. They were uh, four and two. And he was working part-time at the church making $250 a week. And I had no idea how they were surviving. And one time I sat down with Jeff and said, Man, you got to tell me, how are you guys making it? You know, and I was going with the attitude as, as his boss of, Maybe we can give you a little increase here and be generous from the church. And he said, We're fine. He said, We're making it because we tithe. And at that time in my life, I wasn't. In fact, I barely gave anything to the church. I worked for the church. Why would I give to the church? That didn't make any sense to me at all. But as I talked to Jeff, I began to see a principle take place in his life over a two-year period of time. Every time he was short for their rent payment, something happened. Someone from their home church in Arizona would send a check that would be the exact amount of what he needed to make his mortgage. Someone would hand them a check. A check literally would come into the youth ministry saying, you know, just for Jeff. I mean, I never got a check. You know, it was never one for Rick. It was always for Jeff. Things like that kept happening over and over and over. And I'll tell you what, that was one of the number one things that drove me to an understanding of giving. That completely flipped Cheryl and I around in this whole idea of how we give to our church and how it's not about being righteous in my giving. It's about faith. It is simply about trusting the Lord and taking what He has given me and saying, I'm going to give you the first fruits. First thing goes back to you. And after that, Lord, we're going to see what you do. And I can promise you this, there is nothing more fun than watching what the Lord does to make up the difference when you think you're going to be short. Well, anyway, again, I digress, but God says, come to the feast, come ready to give. But what about this, Hank, this idea of a young goat being cooked in its mother's mouth? Well, what's the point of that? Why is that in here in this place? This cracks me up, but it's true and it's almost sad. Orthodox Jews today take this extremely seriously. This is a picture, by the way, gang, of what the law does, of what legalism does. They reach into all these various and sundry laws, and they pull out this one and elevate it to this incredible status. What do you mean? Well, here's what they do. They will not eat meat or dairy products together. They won't have a glass of milk with a hamburger. They won't even have a cheeseburger. Why is that? Because of this verse. The dairy, which representing milk, and the meat could mix in the stomach and boil or seethe there and we'd be violating that command. So you cannot have meat and dairy together if you're an Orthodox Jew. And there are Orthodox Jews today, today who live this way. As a matter of fact, if you, buy, if you want to go buy a cheeseburger at McDonald's in Jerusalem, you can't do it. You know that? You can get a hamburger. You cannot get a cheeseburger at McDonald's. Because they won't put the dairy. They call it McDavid's. 
Are you serious? That's hilarious. I wish I had known that before. I would have got, got a laugh. McDavid's. So you can't buy a cheeseburger at McDavid's, but you can get a hamburger. Well, you probably can't get a hamburger either. They probably don't call it that. You can? Okay, you can get a hamburger get no cheese. And it's all because of this silly rule, which is not a silly rule, by the way, for Israel. It's an incredibly important rule for Israel. But it had nothing to do with the dairy and the milk mixing in your stomach, seething, and then all of a sudden you had nothing to do with that. The reason why it's right here is because something happened in pagan cultures that the Israelites would encounter when they came into, into Canaan. And that thing that happened happened at the same time of the year as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a celebration of fertility rites in which they would take a young goat and they would boil it in its mother's milk for the reason that, so that someone could get pregnant, so that, that women could be fertile. It was all part of a pagan ritual. That pagan ritual also included some other things that you might recognize might be interesting to you. Uh, it included things like chicks and bunnies and colored eggs. It's called Ishtar. And it was a pagan festival, Ishtar, which is where we got the word Easter. And it's where all that stuff in our Easter celebration that's just a month or so away now came from. It has pagan origin, origin and pagan roots. Now, I'm not trying to hammer Easter or say, okay, you can't fill your eggs for your kids if you do that. But what I am saying is that the people of Israel were coming into this place where this would go on. And God, knowing the heart of man, knew that they could just as easily co-opt this, this whole idea of boiling a, a goat and you know celebrating fertility rites along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he says, don't do it. Don't you do it. This was practical, it was important, and it meant something to the people of Israel. And yet today, with no application whatsoever, legalistic Orthodox Jews will take this and make it a hard and fast rule. It reaches in. This is what legalism does. It reaches into a set of laws and plucks out the easiest ones to keep, the most obvious, clear ones to keep, and it elevates them to an unkeepable status. That's legalism. Oh, I can keep that law. Some of these other ones I'm not so sure about. But man, I can make sure I never boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. I just won't eat cheese and meat. I can keep the law. That's a good one for me. It's easy. And then it becomes so hard to keep. And Jesus said this, Matthew 23, 23. To the scribes and Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. You see, the, the, the Pharisees were real good at keeping the, the physical, superficial, tangible things. That was easy. I can figure out a tithe of my mint and dill and, and cumin. I can do those things. But Jesus says, you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those things are harder to keep. Those things are more of a challenge. But you've totally set those aside and picked out these certain little things. And he says, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Amazing. God here is just trying to teach Israel something. Don't mix the godly with the ungodly. That's all this verse is about. Don't mix these things together. Paul would later put it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He said, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of God, Paul writes, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's what God's doing with Israel in this verse and in all of these verses. Come out and be clean. Don't do what the pagan nations do. Don't connect yourself. Don't be bound together with ungodly things. So that's what that verse is about. Well, we get to number four here in our days. And we come to Israel's day of promise. Israel's day of promise beginning in verse 20. Now stick with me here for just a few more minutes. This passage is great. This last section is wonderful. God ends this whole talk of ordinances here at the end of chapter 23. Chapter 24, we're going to go on and some other things are going to begin to happen. The 21, 22, and 23 are the first set of laws God hands to Israel and says to keep. And at the end of them, notice what God does. This is wonderful. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to prepare you or to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him. Obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say... Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries who is the angel. It's got to be Jesus. Right? It's got to be Jesus. Oh, now wait a minute. Okay, now you're going to get into one of those weird Christophany things. Those, those appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Absolutely. It has to be Jesus. Why? Listen to this. A couple of things to note. Number one is this is one unique angel. This is one unique angel. He shows up. The word angel, by the way, here is not angelos, which is the Greek word for angel. It's just the, Greek, the, the Hebrew word for messenger. And Jesus could just as easily be a messenger from God in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm convinced personally that he is a messenger from God. But there's more to it. This one unique angel is also one authority. This angel has the authority to pardon or to not pardon sin. And the Bible is clear about this, gang. Only God has that authority. No angel in the history of the world or anywhere in Scripture is ever handed the authority to forgive sin. Only God does. So now this angel has an authority that is beyond the authority of angels. An amazing authority. He can pardon sin and no ordinary angel can do this. Thirdly, this unique angel with this authority has one appellation. I I love that word. It's just name. He has one name. God says, my name is in him. This angel bears my name. This messenger bears my name. What was God's name? (coughs) Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh. What was Jesus' name? Yeshua. Both the names starting with the key phrase in God's name, Yah. Yahweh. Yeshua. God's name, Yahweh, literally I am, or the Lord. In fact, in your Old Testament, anywhere you see the word Lord in all capitals, that is Yahweh. Okay? And, and it's written the Lord out of respect for him. As a matter of fact, you may recall this, that the, the Jews didn't even write, write out Yahweh. In fact, we don't even know if that's the right pronunciation. It was just Y-H-W-H. Only the consonants, because they revered and respected the name of the Lord so much. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. 
when God says in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We're going to look at his name and understand some things with this that will uh, branch off of this, I think, beautifully on Sunday. But my name is in him. This angel bears my name. The Lord, Yahweh. And what, of course, does Yeshua, Jesus, mean? It means the Lord saves. The Lord, my name is in him. This angel is bearing God's name. He pardons sin. He's a messenger from God. And finally, not only one angel, one authority, one appellation, but one accord. God and the angel are interchangeable. Listen to this verse again. He says, Obey his voice. Obey his voice and do all that I say. In other words, this angel speaks for me. When this angel speaks, I'm speaking. Obey his voice. Do all that I say. He could have said, obey my voice. Do all that he says. It's interchangeable. The angel and God are one. This angel who will go before Israel into the promised land is Jesus. Isn't that a great picture? Because it's the same exact picture that we have as Christians. That Jesus goes before us into the promised land. He precedes us. He steps out. He's the captain of the guard. He's the warrior who goes before, who fights the battle for us, who conquers death for us, and who leads us forward. Look at verse 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the flashlights, and the termites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do anything, or nor do according to their deeds. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars into pieces. What Jesus did for Israel in the promised land, leading them out, is a picture of what he will do for Israel and for the church in the coming millennial kingdom as the Bible talks about in Revelation. In the meantime, as Jesus leads forward, our job, again as witnesses, is twofold. It's to overthrow and to break down. Check this out. He says, I want you to utterly overthrow them. Who's them? Well, it's the the gods and and the evil deeds that are being done in Canaan. Overthrow and break their sacred pillars in pieces or break their graven images. Well, how do we do that? How does that apply to us as Christians, this idea of overthrowing and breaking down? What what are you talking about? What do we do? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, Paul says, We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're overthrowing lies, gang. We're knocking down idols as we simply live as witnesses for Jesus we already talked about, by the way, being witnesses to the truth. I, I read a paper this week that was wonderful. Um, Heather, Heather Gilmore wrote a paper for school about Jesus. That's one of the coolest things. You know, they, you can try and keep prayer out of the public school. You can try and keep Jesus out of the public school. But you put one Christian kid in a public school and Jesus is going to be there. And so Heather wrote this whole paper about proving Jesus. The most wonderful line out of the paper is I, I read it. She sent it, emailed it to me yesterday, and I read through this, and it was great. It was wonderful to read. The best line out of it was the last line. Heather went through various proofs, documentation of the historical Jesus. She talked about some of the prophecies that show how Jesus must have been Messiah. But at the end of the paper, she said this, and I quote, this is directly out of her paper, I personally believe Jesus is real, not only for the documentation of Christ, or the physical evidences, but for the most important reason, my relationship with him. 
Isn't that great? My relationship with Him. That is a witness. That is a witness. Now, whether or not the teacher reading it accepts it, the teacher may go, oh, my relationship with Him. What's that? And a lot of times, unbelieving people have a hard time understanding your relationship with God. But I'm telling you, gang, it is the most powerful tool that you have as a witness. You can give all kinds of proofs about the existence of Jesus, but it's not proof that people want to see. A heart that's in rebellion could care less about the truth or can care less about proofs. But what people see and are drawn to is relationship. And if you're in a relationship with Christ and your life bears witness to that, it's wonderful. It's attractive. And that's when people start saying, I want some of that. I may not understand it. I may not be able to prove it, at least not right up front. But that relationship, that's what I want. Now you may say, okay, I think I can be a a witness. I think I can do that. But how do I break down these worldly idols? Read on, verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water. And I, he says, will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you. I'll throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. They're going to retreat. They're going to run away. Verse 28. I will send hornets ahead of you. So cool. So that they will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. What's the point? The point is, gang, our role in this, and this is how you crush the idols in the world around you, how you topple the graven images, is you serve the one true God. You serve God, and as we talked about Sunday, He will topple the idols. He will drive out the enemy if your life is focused on simply serving Him. God doesn't say develop all kinds of ministry campaigns, door-knocking campaigns, go out there, evangelize the world. He says evangelize the world. But here's how you do it. By serving the Lord. By growing in your relationship to the Lord. By living out as a witness the relationship that you have. Then you live that way and people come to the Lord. I think I've mentioned this before. The Mormons who are probably the best at the door-knocking campaigns... They, they receive a total amount on an annual basis of converts. When they look at all their converts, all the door knocking they do yields 7%. A mere 7% of all the converts that come into Mormonism. 7%. And that is for a concerted effort. That's not a great return, folks. That makes me want to shun the whole idea. Forget door knocking. So what should we do, Lord? Relationship, relationship, relationship. You serve the Lord... And you just love people. And watch me work, God says. I'll go before you. I'm going to drive out the enemy. I'm going to send hornets ahead of you. Hornets. Yeah, hornets. And the commentators of Scripture look at that and go, Well, of course he's referring parenthetically to the Assyrians. Or maybe the Egyptian army. Couldn't really be hornets. Well, I guess that's possible. But personally, I think God sent hornets. I think the Hittites woke up one morning and hornets were everywhere and it drove them out. God sent his terror ahead. There are times in scripture where Israel doesn't even come to the battle. They don't have to show up. There's a great story in the Bible about three little lepers when Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. And these three lepers who are sitting up on the wall, they go, what are we going to do? We're going to die if we go into the city. We're going to die if we stay here. Let's go out to the Assyrian army. So they go out and as they're heading up the road, God throws the army into confusion. 
the Assyrians hear these three lepers coming and think it's the entire army of Israel marching on them and they freak out and they flee and they leave everything. Their food, their shelters, their clothing, their weapons, they just drop it and run. This is how God works. I'll send my terror ahead of you. I'll send my hornet ahead of you. And we look at that and think, okay, how does, how does that work? He sends hornets? Yeah. The point is this. God has ways of removing enemies that we can't even imagine. As weird as it sounds that he's going to send hornets, God can do things you can't even imagine. Paul says it this way, Ephesians 3.20. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. But watch this, we're almost done, verse 29. And this is almost, well, it's a little bizarre. God says, after all this, you serve me and I'm just going to drive them out before you. He says, but, verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in a single year. That the land may not become desolate. And the beasts of the field become too numerous before you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. God may not remove the enemies quickly. He may not remove the hardship from our lives quickly. He may take us through long seasons where little by little He chips away at it, but we're asking, God, can't you just take this from me now? I'm tired of all that is against me right here. Why don't you just do it all at once and get it over with? Because God is working on something so much more important than just getting us into the land. The journey itself, the sojourn itself, is the point. This life is training, it's teaching, it's development. And God will drive out the enemies and He will drive out the sin in my life. The dark places in my heart, He's going to drive out. But He's going to do it little by little by little. Not all at once. It's not all just immediately taken away. Oh, we have righteousness. Don't get me wrong. The moment you accept Christ, you are covered by the blood of Jesus. You are graced. And if you died in that instant, you would be in heaven a righteous person before God because of what He did. But every day of our life that we live here, we deal with sin, don't we? We will continue to deal with sin. And God, bit by bit, will drive it out. But not all at once. Why not all at once? God's saying, I'm going to do things little by little in your life until I bring you to a place of fruitfulness. I'm going to take my time growing you, maturing you, and completing you. A couple of quick verses, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I love this verse. You may recognize it, Philippians 1, 6. I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That word until is the key. He's going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Up to the day of Christ Jesus. Until Jesus comes or until I die, one of those two things, he will day by day be perfecting us. Little by little growing us, maturing us spiritually into godliness. It's a journey. So what do I do in the meantime? Galatians 6.9 tells us, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now you're looking a little weary, so let's finish. Verse 31. I will fix, God says, your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. 
And from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. Very quickly, gang, the day of promise is coming, says the Lord. The day that I promised, I promised you I would get you back into the promised land. That day is coming, he tells Israel. And I'm going to drive out the inhabitants before you, and this is what you're going to have. What's wonderful about this is at the end of these ordinances, God reminds them what it's all about. I'm taking you home. I'm getting you home. You're going to be home. But he tells them exactly what the boundaries are. And gang, if you map this out, some of you know this, if you map this out in the Middle East today, it's 300,000 square miles from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. 300,000 square miles that God says belongs to Israel. How much has Israel ever occupied? Historically, even in their glory days in the kingdom of Solomon, when they had the greatest amount of land mass under their control, they had 30,000 square miles. 270,000 square miles short of what God promises, declares, guarantees right here. I'm reading an interesting book right now called Eye to Eye that is comparing all of the natural disasters over the last 20 years with decisions made by our government to encourage Israel to give up land for peace. And it's stunning, folks. This guy has actually sat down and he's looked at the major catastrophes and, and how they have correlated and on almost every, well, every event, every occasion that one of our presidents, President Bush, first President Bush, President Clinton, and now current President Bush, every single time it seems that they stand up and say, Israel needs to give up land to the Palestinians for peace, disaster happens. Major disaster. And it always follows within a 24-hour period of when someone says, Israel needs to give up land for peace. Disaster strikes. Well, it's just, a, it's just a coincidence, Rick. There are a lot of disasters. In fact, in the last decade, there have been more natural disasters happening than, than any time I can remember. Exactly. Exactly. God is not pleased. God gave Israel 300,000 square, square miles. This belongs to Israel. It's a covenant God made with them. And He's going to give it to them. They will ultimately have that land. But God says, Israel, I'm going to send my angel before you again. Look at verse 32. He says, don't make any covenant with them, that is the inhabitants of the land, or with their gods. Joshua would violate this and make a covenant with the Gibeonites. We'll see that story later on. But in making that covenant, paganism is introduced into Israel. And that's what God did not want. But here he says, don't make covenants with them or with their gods. Verse 33, they shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Two final verses, gang. God tells Israel, I'm going to send my angel before you. I will send my angel before you. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Listen to the description of when God will send his angel before Israel the last time. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished and half of the city will be exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Verse 3 of Zechariah 14. Then the Lord, all capitals, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. As God went before Israel into the promised land the first time, he will go before Israel into the promised land a second time before the dawn of that final day the millennium 
guys, that day of promise is coming. The Bible declares it to be true. History shows us time and time again that all things are pointing down to that ultimate conclusion in the world. We can see these things, we can understand these things, but my friends, the day of promise is not just coming for Israel, it is coming for you and for me as well. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all people die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in its order. Each in his order, Christ the first fruits. And after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until when, Paul says? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. My angel, God says, goes before you. My Jesus fights before you. He is the captain of the guard. He is the warrior who we follow.